0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel. Each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books and we interview the authors of those books. Uh, This week I'm happy to say that we have Michael Pettit on the show and we'll be talking about his book, The Science of Deception. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel. Each week, we scour the Internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. Uh, This week, I'm happy to say that we have Michael Pettit on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, The Science of Deception, Psychology and Commerce in America. Michael, thanks very much for being on the show.
1: Thanks. Um, Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm I'm an associate professor... At York University in Toronto. Um, I started off, and my PhD training was in history. I did my PhD at, at the University of Toronto, uh, studying American cultural history and the history of science and medicine. Um, and it, as this, bu- this book is sort of my dissertation book, and it dealt with the history of psychology. And after I finished my PhD, I had the good fortune of getting hired by York University, which is also in Toronto, but further to the north, um, by the psychology department. So I, I always say I, I didn't go very far. Um, geographically, but I went very far um, in terms of discipline. The reason I'm in psychology is because York has a rather rather idiosyncratic graduate program um, in the history and theory of psychology. So there are four of us that teach the history and theory of psychology to um, psychology graduate students and undergraduate students sort of the history and philosophy of their discipline, as well as training uh, students particularly in um, history and theory of psychology.
0: Hmm. That is interesting. I I don't
1: know any other place that does that. I approve. <laughs> there are there are uh, two or three of us in the world uh, that do this kind of program. There's a bit more theoretical you. psychology, but in terms of interest psychology, there's only one or two other programs that are in, housed in sort of the, the discipline of psychology. That's interesting. So,
0: could you tell us why you wrote the science of deception?
1: Sure. So, as I said a, a minute ago, it began as my dissertation at the University of Toronto, and um, you know the, the book has had sort of a number of lives. It, it sort of began originally in a seminar on. History of American visual culture. Um, we had been reading a lot about P. T. Barnum as kind of this iconic um, 19th century American entrepreneur and his sort of visual style of entertainment. And I was kind of I originally got interested in this idea of, you know, what was the sort of the role of science authority in the kinds of hoaxes and frauds um, that Barnum perpetuated. Uh, as I got into the project, the project kind of shifted quite quickly, uh, more into this idea of. A more kind of perceptual or emotional history of deception. So it moved away from sort of the history of of, of these hoaxes in particular to more, you know, how are people kind of studying uh, the subjects of these kinds of hoaxes? And so, uh, so it shifted from sort of a cultural history of science, more slightly to, to, to more of a disciplinary history focused increasingly on psychology as a science of subjectivity, science of perception, science of emotion. Mm-hmm.
0: And, the, and then the problem that you deal with is, of course, a, a kind of a universal one, or I would even call it a generic one in any culture that has a market. That is, there's a buyer and a seller, and they have to meet minds. Uh, and if that meeting of minds is not uh, quite uh, correctly aligned, then uh, there's something funny about the contract. There's something funny about the engagement or transaction. And, uh, you know, to, at one end of the extreme is obviously the con man and the mark. And that's kind of what we're talking about here,
1: right? Absolutely. So, you know, the, the book begins with sort of, you know, the coining of the concept of the con man in 1840s America, uh, again, linked to the idea of P.T. P. Barnum's humbugs and hoaxes, and then how discussions of being tricked move from kind of the marketplace and kind of, you know, and from the popular press to a kind of a discipline that kind of claimed authority over, you know, why people are air, why people are biased, why people are self-deceiving. Hmm. I mean, it's an interesting question. So uh, let's begin. Just uh, the,
0: the book moves chronologically. So let's begin at the very beginning, and that is a uh, with the 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 discourse in the United States, or the discussion um, of, um, of of deception broadly conceived, but hoaxes of various kinds. So you want to yeah.
1: talk a little bit about that. Oh, sure. Sounds good. So so the the book sort of begins. Uh, uh, for instance for as I said it began in a, in a, it, it, as a history di- dissertation and so I, I want to start outside of the sort of the narrow discipline of psychology and the idea was that um, even when we don't kind of have recognized scientific experts we have a kind of self-talk about psychology that's out there and I kind of want to unpack that first of all and so w- where I kind of looked for psychology initially was in you know advice manuals um, in expose literature and you know, there, there's a sort of a large American historical literature on the history of the Con Man. It's kind of this iconic 19th century figure, and uh, you know, and oftentimes these narratives, you know, starting in the 1840s, was all about how these sort of these you have know, these country rubes who come to the city and are kind of taken in by the the spectacular city and are naive. And what I sort of found when I was reading sort of the Con Man literature over the 19th century is that there's, sort of, there's a shift from um, kind of the idea that uh, you know, it's innocent roots are sort of being taken advantage of to, especially starting in the 1870s, 1880s, that the reason that people are deceived is because they themselves have sort of these dark passions that are leading them into temptation. And so this is, this, is, this, and this kind of intensifies that, you know, um, that most likely the victim of a confidence game was someone that was likely trying to take advantage of someone else. And so you, and you have sort of the, you have the design of, of a whole bunch of different confidence games, uh, you know, of, of different counterfeiting schemes, of, of different mining schemes that all kind of prey on. You know, uh, you think you're take the comments is you're you, you think you're gonna take advantage of me. And you know that's how I'm gonna get your trust. But in fact all along I'm the one's best in you. And that's why we're that's why we kind of fall into these schemes. Mm-hmm. You know, and this certainly also affects how people talked about you know stock market and commercial contracts. And so this idea is that you know people, you know, when they entered into kind of commercial contracts, they were in the market they didn't come with clean hands that so, you know we, we, they, they presupposed these dark hidden vices mm-hmm. so in that way it's a little bit like the way people talked about gambling absolutely so you know like, you know, the, you know there's a blurry line between sort of the look you know the vice literature on uh, you know temperance gambling yeah. spending your money investment in it and I think you know I think a lot of, history of recent history of American capitalism has sort of shown the blurry line between the history of gambling and history of you know Speculation and finance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that
0: uh, the term "confidence man" was coined in the 1840s. Did you say? Yeah. Could
1: you tell us the origin of that phrase? Well, so basically, it, it's, it, it came out of New York City and kind of is this particular crime, and, um, uh, and, and and the idea was uh, uh, it was this criminal that would sort of approach you and he sort of say, um, "Do you trust your fellow man?" He would kind of come well to do um, well to His name was William Thompson and um, he would uh, he would present um, you would say you know an, an investment scheme and um, you know would you give me, would you give me um, money for it? And here's sort of watch the collateral and you'd sort of trust him and so he a watch and then you'd turn out that in fact um, he would not sort of show up to return your watch with the investment. So it, it, it was originally kind of comes out of this um, sort of urban encounter. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a sort of. I, it, there's another
0: way to think about it, and that is an extraordinarily high-pressure sales t- tactic that ends up fraudulent on the
1: other end. Absolutely, and I think that's kind of you know part of the book is you know especially for these 19th century moralists, this attempt to kind of how do we kind of tease apart you know advertising, salesmanship, speculation, gambling, and in some ways they kind of want to keep these different kind of commercial activities distinct yep. right, in different yeah. channels yeah I mean and and in some said, ways in, in terms of their practices they kind of keep on slipping into one of each other and, and that's sort of one of the, the big tensions in, in sort of the advice literature is how do we um, keep these things separate and so you know oftentimes this advice literature is often you know written by uh you know former con men who had very elaborate careers and yeah you know, there was there was a blurry line between kind of their confidence games you know the selling of of, 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 of tonic medicines traveling salesmen you know these kinds of things and so it is it's it's time to kind of kind of police these lines that don't seem
0: sustainable Mm -hmm. and what i was going to say i was sorry for for trying to interrupt there but as you point out this is of some relevance today especially in terms of the um of the the, this mortgage debacle
1: Uh, absolutely
0: you know because some people will say you know well uh, they got just what they deserve they 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 signed up for mortgages that they couldn't um, that they they couldn't pay off, and so well that's the way the market works, and they bought it, and then other people will say, well, you know, uh, they were actually sold something that uh, the, the sellers themselves knew that they could not um that they could not uh, uh sustain the mortgage, but they were getting commissions that is cash up front, so they did it anyway.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, uh, as a historian, um, I feel most comfortable in the past. Right, so the book ends in the 1930s, but you know, this book was sort of written between. 2001 and 2011 you know and so as i was kind of especially as i was kind of revising the book um you know the mortgage crisis you know the financial crisis happened and although i don't i don't i you know i I don't take it up to the present or deal with that that crisis directly um i think as someone kind of was living through it it's imprint <laughs> certainly marks my analysis you know my thinking is definitely you know in the present, even though I'm looking at the past, I think that's true of a lot of historical writing is that you know our, our contemporary situation lets us see certain questions, see, see certain opportunities. And um, I definitely see this book as sort of a book of the 2000s in that regard. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it is an interesting psychological moment as well, because you, one does kind of wonder why you would why you would. Buy something that you knew you couldn't pay for. Um, then there's also this moral moment. You know, again, why should, why would you buy something you knew you couldn't pay for? Uh, so, so, but these are these 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 difficulties are more or less systemic with any sort of market economy. They're just everywhere all the time. Uh, it's just that in certain moments they really become important, as in the mortgage crisis. But anyway, let's get back to the the, the, the book. Uh, so uh, we talked about swindlers and uh, and conmen and people that uh um that pull off hoaxes. Uh, when was the study of these people first brought into academia? When was it thought a proper thing to study? Um, I guess buying and selling or men and their marks.
1: Uh, the, the argument in the book is that it, it, it's it's very much from the beginning of uh, the recognized social sciences. You know, so the social sciences become sort of a feature of. The American Academy, the book is largely focused in the United States with some international comparisons. And, you know, you start seeing the discipline of psychology um, getting institutionalized in the United States. Starting in the 1880s, uh, it's what they call the new psychology. And what they mean by that is that it's an experimental science rather than a more sort of philosophical um, armchair science. And part of what the book says is uh, um, that, you know, when you look at sort of the earliest Um, publications of these psychologists. Um, The work on perceptual illusions are are really early. And where where it manifests itself most for psychologists, um, the particular con men, or in this case con women, that they're most intrigued by, has to do um, with various spiritualists and psychical researchers. And the reason for this is that this is very much part of the boundary work that goes into defining um, what is psychology. So, if you were to ask an American, in an educated American, in the you know the 1880s, what is psychology? They were as likely to say it had something to do with table lifting, um, communication with the dead, these secondary personalities, and most American psychologists, with few notable exceptions, are deeply um, skeptical of, uh, of of this of, of this cultural movement. Um, which is you know and it's largely male psychologists and female spiritualists it's been discussed by a number of people and part of what they have to do is sort of define themselves as kind of legitimate science is engage in exposes mm-hmm. and so so for this reason kind of this this exposing sort of the trickery of the marketplace and like I said and this kind of kind of gets particularly embodied in the body of the spiritualist is a really important part of how psychology comes to define itself in the 1880s, 1890s. Yeah. I mean, and it's important to recognize that there was an actual discipline
0: that stood right alongside the experimental psychology, which was born in, in Germany, really. I think it's Wilhelm Wundt that does it. Uh, And and that was what you you could study at Johns Hopkins and so on and so forth. And that was parapsychology and it was actually called parapsychology,
1: which was, you know, right. Absolutely. And, you know, to what extent, you know, so, the very first psychological experiment that's published in the United States, which is conducted by Charles Sanders Peirce, the famous yeah. semiotician yeah. And, um, uh, and and um, pragmatist and his student, Joseph Jastrow, is on um, the subliminal sense, right? So, you know, what is kind of just below the threshold of perception, Right. And they sort of in, in the conclusion of that article say, you know, this might explain, you know, this little might explain, you know, women's intuition. Uh-huh. It might explain some of these phenomena that are take, that are that are taking off. So absolutely. so so at this and if you look at the early um uh, membership of you know the American Society for Psychical Um Research, it's almost all populated by the very founders of American psychology. You know, and, and it's you know is it William James, doesn't he is he make an appearance there? So William James is—I is, said most of them are deeply skeptical of, of psycho research. William James is by far the most sympathetic. William James um, is the one that really thinks that there's something going on um, with psychical research. That something, you know, that, that there's a, there's a debate on, of what's going on there—whether it's fraud, whether it's you know what we might now call um, you know multiple personality, you know, or is it kind of communication with the dead? James thinks there's something going on there, and, he, and so James is sort of you know the grand figure of American psychologists at this time period. He In 1890, he writes this book, Principles of Psychology, um, which is a deeply foundational book and one of the most widely used textbooks for several decades. But James is always, you know, it, it's always an odd figure, right? So, it's, so in some ways he's highly respected, but, you know, he himself, um, like a lot of popular psychology, quickly leaves the laboratory. He's not much of a laboratory scientist, and he thinks that we can study psychology just as well by, you know, Taking, um, you know, by doing these like, doing psychological research by um, surveying people on their um, odd experiences. So, you know, we so so in, in the eighteen nineties, um, psychological researchers do these surveys of you know, you know, have you ever heard voices? Um, you know, have you ever seen you know a ghost? And they're trying to collect, you know collect this data. So, I think part of what the book is also trying to do is thinking about you know, psychology, especially within the discipline itself, really defines itself by its experimental method. You know, as you said, psychology is born in 1879 when Wilhelm Wundt sets up the first laboratory at Leipzig, and that's when we have psychology. If you read mm-hmm. any psychology textbook, that's what they tell. Yeah, that is what they tell. You. That's why that's what I know. <laughs> and part of what I'm trying, trying to focus is kind of the plurality of it, right? So, so that in fact, you know, that you know, but if you actually look at psychology today, there's all kinds of survey work gets done, right? Questionnaires. So, there's all kinds of different ways of knowing that psychology uses. It. And I think, you know. And, and and part of we, so you have to sort of think about how things like um, you know psycho research these kinds of surveys, these case studies of of abnormal behavior was just as foundational to the new psychology as kind of the experimental um, uh, reports, which you know um, haven't aged as you know you know. Often you, you hear about these founding figures. So sort of like, so what were they actually about? You know what were they actually? You know what was what was kind of their theory? And it's not entirely clear a hundred years later. You know. What it was. it was, it was as much kind of an attitude and a, and, and, a, and a practice as it was kind of you know a theory or a particular discovery. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, the people in the Wundt
0: category were attempting to discredit the people in the William James category, and therefore uh, maintain a
1: boundary or establish a boundary, I guess. Absolutely, you know, and, and and you know, I, you know, the most prominent kind of debunkers are uh, this uh, one psychologist who uh, I think this book probably deals them more than anyone else. It's Joseph Jastrow. Um, and he, he's sort of the first person to get a PhD in psychology in the United States. Um, he's at the University of Wisconsin for most of his career. But he spends most of his time kind of writing popular science books. And the other person that um, is uh, particularly prevalent in this is a, is, is a German, Hugo Munsterberg, who is one of Wundt's um, chief students. William James meets him. He thinks he's really great. He brings him to Harvard. Uh, within a year or two at Harvard, they realize they can't stand one another. Um and, And um, (laughs) it it often happens in the early history of psychology. You know, it's a lot of personalities that don't tend to get along, and um, and then um, and so and both you know Jastrow and Munsterberg, as well as G. Stanley Hall, who was another one of the big founders and organizers of early American psychology, they 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 all kind of get involved in a a very you know skepticism is the way in, right? So part of how you define yourself as, as a good psychologist for them is to like adhere to unbelief. Right. unbelief is kind of your, your criteria and you know the, these 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 exposés um, got a fair bit of um, press you know these here they're publishing in places like Harper's and the New York Times and the Atlantic Monthly yeah. so this was you know th- their exploits were very much part of the middle brow print culture of the turn of the century so we think of kind of the birth of kind of this mass culture and print culture of um, these psychologists were not kind of You know, writing very technical, esoteric things to themselves, but really they're writing um, in very everyday, um, accessible venues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I think it also bears
0: mentioning, I can't be very specific here, it's in the book, but uh, that these, what we would think of as mm, sort of pen and teller like tricks, uh, were uh, very popular in this era and were very much believed to access in some way some paranormal realm. There were a lot of people that believed these things.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, this is kind of a golden age of vaudeville, right? we yeah. So, we're, we're, you know, this is 1890s. So this is just before the birth of cinema. So this is kind of the great era of, of the live stage. And certainly magicians were some of the greatest performers of this era. And, you know, I said Joseph Jastrow – Hardly ran any experiments after he got his PhD. He almost exclusively wrote um, popular science books. But one of the few experiments that he ran um, featured two of the country's most prominent stage magicians. He, you know, they're kind of doing this tour of the American West. They go through Madison, Wisconsin, and he invites them into his laboratory to sort of see, you know, what allows these stage magicians to do their tricks? You know, are, you know, do they have any kind of perceptual abilities that are superior to the ordinary person? Do they have reflexes that are greater than the ordinary person? And so, and, and this inviting of, like, you know, these magicians into into the laboratory was actually a fairly common practice internationally. Alfred Binet, who's probably most famous for his intelligence test, he's one kind of he develops what eventually becomes the IQ test in France. And he also conducts a series of experiments with um, the most the leading magicians of the day, and so that's one thing. So there's these experiments on these magicians, but also, you know. Joseph Jastrow, when he writes about um, his exposés, he sort of says um, he switches. Initially he says if we're going to study parapsychology we need to bring it up to the same kind of standard as any other kind of scientific investigation. You know, and that and, and we have to kind of bring it into the scrutiny of the laboratory. And that's in, in that, and that's a very common line that he espouses in the 1880s and other people do. Mm-hmm. By 1900 he says that's the wrong attitude. The problem with science is that it makes us too trusting. If you're a scientist, you kind of assume nature is going to kind of, uh, you know, it needs to be manipulated. It needs to, you know, in a kind of a Baconian way. But nature does not intentionally deceive. People do. Mm -hmm. And so we can need a different kind of style, different kind of techniques to study people than we do to study other kinds of nature. He says, you know, for the psychologist... He needs to look to two different kind of models of of knowing. So it's not just to other scientists that we have to look at. He says, there's two figures. One is stage magician, right? The person, you know, stage magician, they're really good at kind of stage, uh, putting on kind of uh, a a performance, right? Misdirecting you in in that sense. And the other person um, that we can model ourselves on is kind of the detective who kind of in an amoral way goes after the truth and isn't sort of afraid to kind of rough up a suspect to kind of get his answer. And so the state position is both kind of an object to study for these psychologists, but they also think there's ways, that, there's lessons they can learn from state magic about the designing of their experiments. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So uh, at, at, what, at, at what point do they, I, I think you say this in the book, at what point do they decide that there is, there is the th- one of the things that needs to be investigated is in fact gullibility? And that, that, that these, because they, They have already decided that uh, these uh, so-called paranormal um, um, activities are fraudulent.
1: The question then becomes, why do people believe in
0: them? Absolutely.
1: I I think that's pretty, you know, so it's pretty early on. So, you know, but Joshua's first book in 1890, or sorry, uh, 1900, is, you know, fact and fable in psychology. Um, And for him, you know, to sort of understand kind of the credulity of things in life, in spiritualism, in you know, animal magnetism, in various phenomena, we have to uh, sort of understand um, why people are gullible. Now, in some ways, this is psychology, but in some ways, you know, that's not a very empirical book. It's a book of very colorful essays. Um, and so, um, you know, so in that sense, I wouldn't say it's sort of an empirical project for them. And I think it, it doesn't, and it's not an empirical frame for a long time. So, you know, this is also the great era, especially in Europe, of crowd psychology. And, and for another thing these crowd psychologists, which I think it's resonating with some of this, this work, um, you know, you don't need to prove that the masses are gullible. You know that. That is you know <laughs> this, this this is the default assumption, right? This you know, this is um, so then you have to, and kind of assuming gullibility then allows you to kind of look at the mechanism of the actual trick itself. We can kind of explain the trick itself through, you know, through perception. But that people are kind of um, masses that are likely to be manipulated. Um, like I said, it's kind of the common assumption of, of, of these fairly elite, highly educated men. And if anything, you know, these Suppositions only intensified during World War I. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so, part of this, you know, where this kind of goes, this sort of psychology of deception, is it gets up, taken up in sort of theories of propaganda um, uh, in, in, um, during the First World War. You now, people are kind of moved by nationalism and mass media. Um, so, you think of the origins of Walter Lippmann. And it really is only in you know, the 1930s and 1940s with the rise of people like Paul Lazarsfeld and different kinds of uh, communication research that we actually start making kind of how people read media, uh, kind of an object of study, rather than kind of assuming kind of this more hyper needle model of consumption where, you know, we know they're gullible. So it's really, I'd say for the first half of the 20th century, gullibility is the assumption, not kind of the plan of research.
0: Mm-hmm. So then, uh, then in creating this boundary, what the psychologists—that is, the empirical psychologists, if we can call them that—do uh, is they 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 debunk uh, these these claims to paranormal activity, uh, and 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 they more or less don't study, but they assume that people are gullible, and so the focus is on the techniques.
1: Absolutely, and you know, and and some people, you know, and some people in, and some people are out. Right. So what one woman that particularly irritates them is this Italian washerwoman, uh, Paladino, who kind of does these various tours of various um, uh, researchers. And and there's all kinds of issues here. You know, this is a it's a woman. She's working class. You know, this is this is in the, in the first decade of the 20th century when forms of nativism were pretty high in America. And so you have kind of this southern European working class woman washerwoman. You have these, you know, Columbia professors, these Harvard professors saying, you know, we shall smash her on American shores. You know, we're not going to let her get away. You know, the Europeans may have, you know, believed some of her stuff, but, you know, we, you know, good Americans are are, are going to do it. And, and, you know, and so they stage this, this you know, these these um, performances in New York City, uh, you know, where to, to defeat her, you know, they themselves... Have to undergo trickery, and and so what what they do is uh, they bring her into New York City, and she says, you know, here's a device. We're going to see if you, you know, we're going to measure you and see if you can sort of generate this spiritual electrical charge on this electroscope. And they give her this big device in the center of the table. So this is, you know, this is a séance table. So you have her head, you have people surrounding her, and they say, okay, focus on this. But the whole device is a complete rube itself. The whole point of getting her to focus on the device is to sort of distract her enough so that two of their confederates can sort of sneak into the room, dress entirely in black, and hide under the table. And that's where the real knowledge is going to happen. And and so, and and people sort of say, it's like, you know, people like William James sort of raises this issue. Like, so, so, you know, what's going on here? Like, what does she reduce this to? The, the men of science this is kind of, you know, it's the language to kind of use rather than scientists. You know, what does it mean that, you know, how has the men of science to like playing parlor tricks to hide under the table? You know, like, hasn't she debased this? Hasn't she kind of won if this is what we're doing? Mm-hmm.
0: Let me ask a related, I don't know if it's a related question or not, but it seems to me that what these psychologists were doing is that they were taking the magic out of the world. There's a famous uh, there's a famous word, ensalberum, which Max Weber uses about this. Um, what were the implications of this? Did people comment on this? And I'm thinking particularly of religious people, because if you can show that uh, there are lots of ways to trick people, um, then it's not a, a very far step to say that much of what we think of as miracles are all deception as well.
1: Absolutely. So I think this is a theme I I didn't quite, you know, work out as well as I'd have liked in the book. But I do think that sort of the history of culture of deception and culture of tricks, I think is an important part of the history of, you know, un and disbelief, you know, sort of the, you know, the rise of kind of free thought, the rise of atheism and, you know, um, the psychologists I mentioned have various, um, religious backgrounds, um, Jastrow and Munsterberg um, were born Jewish. Uh, most of them are kind of American Protestants. Uh, but, you know, for most of them, they become fairly a religious. So I think you're absolutely right that, that that for them, you know, this disenchantment of the world isn't kind of an accident, but what they're up to, right? So you're absolutely right that, that part of the trying to show is that what you think is kind of wondrous and awe filled. It's explainable yeah. and mundane. Yeah. And we are going to kind of be the experts in this new century, the 20th century that can kind of explain and guide you right. rather than kind of forms of religious authority.
0: Right. Ignore the man behind the curtain.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> uh, at one point, Frank Baum, you know, who was, who was, you know, someone who stopped designed window displays originally was very much part of, you know, using kind of aesthetics and, and aesthetics design, um, I think it's also part of the story, right? You know, so, And I think it, it, it's two things. So there's, so there's, as I think forms of consumer culture through things like cinema, the rise of the department store, artists are creating these new kinds of cathedrals of wonder and amazement. That goes hand in hand with kind of this project of we need to inculcate forms of disbelief and dispassion as what's kind of going to, Help us navigate it. So mm-hmm. I think there's, and there's a dialectic there between kind of these new forms of kind of awe and wonder and these kind of new forms of debunking. So mm-hmm. This is really a history of kind of the debunking sensibility, the yeah. passion for expose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, in chapter
0: four of the book, if I, I think it's chapter four, you segue into a discussion. It's kind of a legal discussion, a discussion of the way in which this research mm-hmm. impacts the law, and, and I think the central notion there is that the unwary purchaser. This is somebody who is essentially defrauded and and these psychologists are brought into a legal discussion. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So part of what I was trying to do here, like with the earlier part in the book, you know, of kind of trying to find the way that the advice literature was talking about a kind of psychology, I was interested in how legal experts also kind of think about the self and kind of mobilize an idea about personhood, um, individual agency, action when you're making legal decisions, when you're making law. So part of what I was thinking about, so when we look at the law regulating um, fraud, trademark infringement, deceptive advertising, what ideas about, you know, human nature, human psychology did legal thinkers have built into it? And when I started the project, I knew I wanted to talk about that. And as I got kind of lucky when I was kind of in the archives, I, I found... Records not only of uh, when I was in Hugo Munsterberg's papers, but in particular um, that he in fact had acted as, as an expert witness in some of these kinds of cases. So it wasn't sort of me hoping that there would be uh, a, a connection. There was actually a historical connection. I think obviously for historians, you know, if we don't have to, you know, if we don't have to assert it, but we can kind of prove it, mm. um, that's always a good moment. So, you know, in most American commercial law and most American contract law, the assumption is. Um, A reasonable person. The idea is, in in most cases, um, you have to take responsibility for your actions. This is kind of central to, you know, the liberal rule of law. Um, And cases of trademark infringement were different, and different in a really particular way. If you read these cases, it's, it's, it's really odd. So in the 1880s, 1890s, you have judges in making these decisions, saying, "You know, the ordinary purchaser, have or their language, has the right to be careless. A right to be careless. That's kind of a weird thing from the rule." <laughs> you know, uh, they said, "You know, the ordinary purchaser is likely to make a decision in a moment." And so they have this, this you know. So that's idea that you know um, that that people when they're buying things. Act quickly. They don't pay that, that much attention, and you can sort of see, see this in, in the context of trademark infringement. So, if you think of kind of a well-known brand that you have kind of been used to seeing time and time again, I'll use one that's historically accurate: Coca Cola, right? You, and you sort of associate, you know, Coca Cola with that red light, with that red packaging, the white swirl, that kind of lettering. When people use other kinds of cola names, even, you know, how much attention are you paying? And so, what American judges were doing in the 1880s, 1890s was saying, we have to assume that people are careless, right? And what this will allow us to do is, if we assume people are careless and um, are unwary, That is to the benefit of established brands like Mm Coca-Cola, right? The idea is, um, if the presumption is people are careless, then we need to be strong in policing these new challengers. And part of where this comes up as well is, Coca-Cola is one common example, but also um, the fight between butter and margarine. You know, I think it's hard for us to think about this in, you know, 21st century, but you know, margarine caused all kinds of consternation in the in in, in um the nineteenth in the nineteenth century as this kind of the substitute for butter. Um, there's all kinds of debates of how margarine should be colored. You know, there's debates of whether margarine should be colored pink so that there's no way you can confuse it um, with butter. And obviously there's this is not sort of a, a, an ordinary debate, um, but you know it's being driven by, you know, the dairy industry is a huge industry in nineteenth century America, right? Agricultural industry. And so initially when margarine gets introduced into the United States in the 1880s, the argument is that, you know, it's bad for your health. This is something that's been, you know, produced by animal fat. It's, you know, it's a dangerous substance. And that kind of legal regulation of margarine doesn't hold very long. So instead what kind of happens instead, they say is the reason we need to regulate margarine is because of deception. People will accidentally buy margarine when they think they, when they think they're getting butter. And so that's another sort of instance where, you know, if we presume that people are going to are error prone gullible, acting quickly, then that justifies a kind of a a more intense regulation of commercial goods, which is, like I said, again, along with this idea of assumption of carelessness, it's like odd for kind of late 19th century American um, commercial law, where we kind of assume, where we, we tend to assume that it's a more hands off laissez faire, you know, you get what you get. Type mentality. Mm-hmm. But here so it so was so for me it was kind of an interesting legal moment as well as a history of psychology moment of you know, why around the kind of these forms of consumption? It tends to be around the consumption of small household goods soap, drink, medicine, food. Around those kinds of commercial objects, there's a pretty intense um debate about kind of the psychology of consumption. Mm-hmm. i mean if, if I recall
0: correctly i don 't know if this is you can tell me that when uh margarine was first marketed this was in my mom's day she told me this i think it was my mom and my grandma that um margarine was white and it used to come with a yellow pack of dye
1: absolutely <laughs> and you had to mix them up <laughs> and, that, and, and, that's for, and that was the legal compromise right yeah <laughs> if, if you coat it yellow yeah in the store you know and, and Again, so what I'm saying when I say that you know, availability was the assumption, you know, and this is the question: you know, like, did, they, did the did judges actually have good evidence that people were actually deceived by these products? And the answer is no, right? This is a, it's a psychology, but it's a it's a presumed, it's an asserted psychology, not one that's kind of based on you know, well, you know, here we have twenty witnesses saying that you know they were tricked. That's not particularly interesting to these um uh, uh, to, to the to, to these um. Judges and lawyers mm-hmm.
0: didn't the psychologists it, themselves have something to say about that? I mean, did you mention? Something? I mean, didn't the psychologists themselves have something to say about
1: the the degree to which people were gullible or at the point at which they would be deceived? Absolutely. So that and, and so you know during the Progressive Era mm-hmm. and you think of the you know, the American Progressive Era, there's a whole bunch of attempts to kind of move from kind of a more kind of legal formalism to kind of a, a law that's informed by social science, right? So you know you know if we're going to study if we're going to Regulate workers' working hours. We want evidence about from, from medicine about their fatigue. These kinds of things. This, this is kind of a very big progressive thing. And similarly, around the law of trademark, you have trademarkers saying, "Okay, maybe we can make this empirical. You know, maybe we can create design psychology experiments for the likelihood that different kind of brand names are going to are, are likely to trick." And 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 what they do is they kind of get a collection of maybe. 10 or 20 different brands or images or names and they'd pair them with something similar and they would give them to a, a group of people to then see which ones and you know, they sort of flash at them, at them for like five seconds, see which ones they could identify and within that within that group, they would include the brand that was up for lit- litigation. Mm-hmm. The idea was to say, okay, we don't have to presume gullibility, but we can show empirically where on the scale of different um, confusing names, the one at stake uh, is. And when, when this evidence gets, gets introduced into um, the courts in, in, in the 19 teens, the judges are sort of say, We don't think it's wrong, but we don't think it's relevant. We are not going to secede our authority to kind of interpret people's minds. To this new form of psychological expertise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people have written about the history of kind of science and the law. And, you know, there's been a fairly big openness um, within the law to different kinds of expertise. You know, we think about all kinds of forensic expertise around, you know, chemistry, um, toxicology, um, medicine. And psychology has been one of the big sites where the law has been very skeptical of that kind of authority. And part of it is is because psychology is the one that kind of, its expertise is, you know, intuiting, you know, why people behave, whether they're responsible. It's very much, it's it's a usurping of that legal decision-making process as opposed to kind of complementing it. And this is one instance, again, where the psychologists like say, we can create this measure, and the judges are sort of like, thanks, but no thanks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
0: then you have a, a couple of fascinating accounts of the, again, it's still the way in which mm, deception, I guess, broadly construed, Uh, enters into a new kind of uh, legal or criminological or forensic discourse. And that has to do with the assimilation of psychotherapy and um, this new gadget, the lie detector into the legal culture. So let's first deal with psychotherapy. We don't really think of uh, um, police officers or investigators using psychotherapy today. (laughs) I don't think. So how does it it enter the legal culture in the 19-teens and 20s?
1: Sure. So this is, again, this is the progressive era. And, you know, part of... uh, So oftentimes we hear uh, these days about how neuroscience is threatening to kind of challenge the law, challenge um, uh, legal decision-making, and, you know, we're going to have this colonization of the law by neuroscience. And to my mind, uh, I'm pretty skeptical of these claims because in a lot of ways that challenge has already happened. Part of what the progressives were about was arguing that people didn't um, commit crimes because of their own individual nature, but because of their socialization. This is the first, you know, it's because how they were raised, it was because of the social conditions of the cities they lived in, et cetera, et cetera. And so where psychotherapy enters the the law is precisely through these arenas around juvenile justice. So, you know, in in the first, in in the very beginning of the 20th century, we start have the creation of things like juvenile courts, The idea is that we're going to treat young offenders differently than um, adult offenders because, A, um, they don't have the full responsibility because they're younger, and, B, um, they can be saved. You know, these teens can be saved. And so rather than kind of a more, um, and it's a a pushback against kind of a late 19th century criminal anthropology, which sort of said, you know, of the born criminal, that we can sort of tell people are criminals because of, you know, their physiognomy. And so and then we can sort of think about, we can sort of diagnose what kinds of mental problems, whether, you know, and it's you know, it's broadly clinical, so it could be everything from intelligence, which has like a slightly more eugenic flavor to it, to, you know, the, re- the conditions they were being reared under. Um, this is what explains, uh, this could ex- This might explain their behavior. And if we can kind of intervene at an early age, they can be rehabilitated. So it's, so it's part of this re- rehabilitative uh, aspect of criminology, which I think, um, waxes and wanes over the history of the 20th century, and but one of the effects of this uh, of, of this kind of more uh, psychotherapeutic approach is the discovery of a class of juvenile offender who is again almost exclusively female, uh, who William Healy, who's the chief psychiatrist in Chicago at the juvenile court, um, calls the pathological liar. And this is a woman, unlike other juvenile delinquents, who seems to lie for no particularly good reason. Right? So, other juvenile delinquents will lie because they want to get out of trouble. You know, they'll want to. You we know, like, can explain the rationality of their lies, whilst the pathological liar, you know, she'll lie to incriminate herself. She'll, and and this is sort of, I think, for him, I think a generally troubling encounter with these kinds of individuals. Um, and so this is a kind of I think a kind of concept that's kind of you know I think we oftentimes hear talk about pathological liars, but originally I kind of had this very clinical situation, and it really kind of came out of uh, the application of kind of this more therapeutic approach and this individual diagnostic approach um, to of criminology. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So then let's move on to the um, lie detector, uh, which is a, is a fascinating story. Go ahead.
1: Sure. So the, you know, the, so the lie detector kind of comes out of the very same institutional spaces uh, as some of the earlier stuff I was talking about. Uh, this is something I'm trying to highlight. So at the very same time that Hugo Munsterberg was comparing competing brand names and his students were doing similar things, um, one of the subjects in these experiments... Uh, was William Marston, the quote-unquote inventor of the lie detector. And I say that because there are several um, competing claimants um, to the invention of the lie detector. And as uh, my friend and colleague Jeff Bunn in his recent book on the lie detector has kind of shown, this rhetoric of inventing the lie detector is part of the hype machine of the lie detector itself. And but I think we see a lot of continuity between kind of the lie detector and, um, and some of the other stuff I was talking about. Because again, I think a really important part of the lie detector is the stage magic of it. There's something very similar to the lie detector um, in in interrogating the criminal with the electroscope being used to kind of distract and convince Palladino during the seance. You know, because oftentimes the lie detectors were not nearly as reliable as as their publicity would indicate. And they were oftentimes, you know, they were not legally admissible. Um, they tried to get them illegally mis- admitted in 1920, but much like in the case of the unwary purchaser, um, the judges say thanks, but no thanks. And instead, what they're there to do is kind of, they're really there to kind of elicit a confession. So it really is a hype, you know, it really is a kind of a hyper um, dramatic um, situation to kind of get you to kind of con- confess run actually use the, you know, the mechanical objectivity of the machine to actually measure and detect it, a, a, a lie. So I think we see really strong connections with kind of this longer history of, of, um, of kind of exposure. And so I think there's a really close kinship to kind of the staging of the lie detector and staging of the kind of the debunking of, of the spiritualist. Uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. How did the psychological
0: community uh, respond to the lie detector?
1: So I think it's largely seen as kind of a marginalized thing. You know, so at, this, at the time that this is going on, um, psychology are trying to get respectability. Lie detector is the definition thereof of applied psychology. You know, applied psychology is not seen particularly well um, during this time period. And it really kind of flourishes in kind of these, you know, outside the university space. So, you know, it's, so it's, it's largely kind of pursued by these scientists, entrepreneurs, um, uh, people like Leonard Keeler and William Marston, who basically, you know, Keeler never got his PhD. He was kind of this tinker, gadgeteer in California, and then eventually in Chicago. Uh, Marston sort of leaves um, the university, it's um, kind of become a publicist. He's probably most famous today as the inventor of Wonder Woman. So he enters the college in the 1930s, uh, 40s, with, you know, and, and Again, my friend Jeff Bunn has done wonderful work on kind of um, on the lie detector and Wonder Woman, you know, this idea of, you know, these very powerful women and kind of Marston's kind of interesting version of 1930s feminism, but also Wonder Woman and her lasso of truth as a kind of lie detector. And so there's really strong continuity in terms of, of, of these things. And it really, the lie detector is really something that kind of lives and flourishes in terms of popular culture and police work more than... Um, the university and it's kind of, it's authority. Mm-hmm. So
0: maybe we could conclude the interview by talking a little bit, and I don't know if you can answer this question, but about the science of deception today, where does, where does psychology stand? Are we better able to understand why people are tricked and how gullible people are? Is there a gullibility index? Is there, uh, you know, is there a, dis- a, 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 deception metric or anything like that?
1: Sure. Um, so I can, you know, as a historian, I think like a lot of historians I tend to have a very um, deflationary attitude towards the world. I think we tend to be pretty, you know, um, there's nothing new under the sun type thing. And so certainly in the past decade or so, there's been a um, with the rise of new technologies um, for um, of brain scanning and and and, and measurement. There's been a whole new whackload of technologies. Uh, and promises of kind of new forms of lie detection. That's one area. The other one has to do with um, Paul Ekman and kind of work on, on on facial expression, which kind of goes back to Darwin. And I'm pretty skeptical of, 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 of these things, not because I doubt kind of the technological prowess of these things, but I think deception in itself, and as I try to show in the book, is, is actually a pretty malleable, ill-defined, <laughs> polyvalent concept. Mm-hmm. You know oftentimes our, our definitions of deception are, are kind of negations, and I think it's, I, I, so I'm pretty that we'll ever kind of have it uh, ever have kind of a, a lie detection machine of any sort simply because I don't think we have a particularly clear or great definition of deception itself so for me it's kind of a conceptual issue, philosophical issue, and it kind of it's sort of it kind of psychology. For a hundred years now, it's sort of promised to explain why we err, you know, why we have biases, you know, you know why, you know, it's a science of kind of our sub subjectivity, And it always kind of promises forms of guidance. But I think it's kind of this, you know, it's sort of this constant just over the horizon um, area of promise and anticipation, rather than something I think that we're going to see um, completed in the near future. hmm
0: uh, should we be worried at all that um, advertisers are putting subliminal messages in their advertisements? <laughs>
1: I think, you know, at, 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 again, and this is the word that certainly goes back at least to the 1950s, if not yeah. earlier. I think this is it, but I think um, the hype around these things is you know, is as seductive as the thing itself.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was my impression of the. I, I've read a little bit about these subliminal advertising and what they determined is it didn't work. So they didn't need the government to tell them it didn't work. It just didn't work. I mean, and also, you know, the other thing about advertising is, is if you put an attractive woman next to it, people are more likely to buy it. And everybody knows that. You don't need, nothing subliminal about it. You know, things like that are just trying to true. <laughs> so you don't need to appeal to any sort of subconscious or anything like that. So, Michael, thanks so much for being on the show today. We've been talking with Michael Pettit about his book, The Science of Deception, Psychology and Commerce in America. Michael, we have a traditional final question on new books in history and it is what
1: are you working on now? Sure. I, I I'm working on a, on, a, on a bunch of projects. So, so one of my abiding contemporary concerns is the history of psychology subjects, kind of a history of psychology from below. And, you know, the 20th century, we have all kinds of incredible data of, you know, you know, people's responses to psychological tests Responses to surveys, um, letters written to psychological experts, and so part of what I'm trying to do these days is really think about you know how people came to live psychological lives, and you know we have that's been a, a very dominant theme in the history of psychology, but it tends to be very top down. Below, we kind of assume that people adopt um, the concepts that are popular at the time, and, and so a lot of my work these days is kind of looks at that. And like a lot of other people, I'm also in in, in new forms of kind of digital history. And so I'm playing with a lot of things with maps and social networks Mm -hmm. and thinking about ways in which we can kind of um, return to ask more kind of big history, um, social structure type questions as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Michael, that sounds fascinating, and I hope you can be on the show again.
0: Again, we've been talking with Michael Pettit about his book, The Science of Deception, Psychology and Commerce in America. Uh, First, let me say, Michael, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And second, let me say that I'm Marshall Poe, and I'm the host of New Books in History, and I hope that all the listeners to this podcast have a great week.